Welcome to the 2023 Gold Outlook webinar. We're excited to have you today. We have founder and CEO of Monetary Metals, Keith Wiener, here to provide us with a brief overview of the conclusions of the 2023 Outlook report. The report was over market policy, Fed actions, gold, macroeconomic outlook, everything you could possibly need to know for 2023. So following Keith's brief opening remarks, we'll leave the remaining time open for a Q&A session where you can send in your questions to be answered by Keith live. So that will be in the chat room there. So just submit your questions and I'll try to get to as many of them as we can. We understand there are a lot of attendees today. So if we don't get to your question during the Q&A session, please don't hesitate to follow up with us by email. We're always happy to continue the discussion and help figure out ways that we can guide you through the market turmoil. So I'll now hand over the microphone to CEO Keith Wiener for a quick overview of the contents and conclusions of the report. Keith, take it away. Thanks, Ben, and uh, welcome to everybody uh, joining us. What I thought I would do uh, is not so much go over what the report says, which everybody can uh, to, you know, read for themselves, but kind of talk about the, the meta, you know, what's, what's behind it and what's the, what's the concept. Um, and this is a theme that runs through a great deal of my uh, economics work. And that is that people are not stateless, right? So it's, it's easy and convenient, tempting, facile to assume that, hey, if the government central planners do the same thing today as they did last year or 10 years ago or 50 years ago, then we're gonna get the same output. That uh, you know, people in the economy are, are just a simple function like if you think of uh, the sine function, you know, sine of an angle, it doesn't really matter what time of day it is or what year it is or how many people there are in the economy or anything else or what the debt levels are. If you call sine of, you know, 90 degrees, you get a value of one. If you get, call sine of zero, then you get zero. Um, but uh, the economy and people are stateful. Um, if you just busted them up with rate hikes and they go bankrupt, and then the day after that, you stimulate them or try to stimulate them with the same lower interest rates that you did last year, you may not get the same outcome. So that in general, the economy is not linear. It's not necessarily contiguous. It's not uh, stateless. Um, it's not scalar. There's not just single, one single variable. Um, and uh, in general, it's, there's positive feedback loops and resonance in the economy. And, and my uh, favorite example of resonance is the Tacoma, Narrow, Tacoma Narrows Bridge, uh, which the video of the collapse of that is an extraordinary thing uh, to watch. Uh, it's on YouTube. Extraordinary, not, not least because it's not like people were walking around with iPhone cameras back in those days. I think it was the 1940s when it collapsed, but somebody happened to be there filming it when it actually uh, fell. Um, so just take this idea of we're supposed to raise interest rates to um, you know something 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 cause prices to either stop rising or even go down, and and it's quantity it's the quantity theory of money it's this idea that prices are a function of quantity um, the way you know the the sine of an angle is a function of the angle, and um, this this view one of the most bizarre things to me is that. This view is held by both the apologists for the Fed, the court economists who promote the Fed and everything the Fed wants you to think, and the most angry critics. Everybody agrees on this. Quantity goes up, 
you know, therefore prices go up, quantity goes down, therefore prices go down. And so rising interest rates are supposed to, um, you know, cure the, the, you know, the rising quantity of dollars. And, um, you know, if you read the report, I talk about this, you know, what, what, what happens when interest rates rise? Well, first you, you start to curtail demand, that's true. So take for instance, um, cinder blocks, which are used in home construction. Well, rising interest rates certainly reduces the demand for homes. And so um, every distributor that has cinder blocks and in inventory has to sell them. And in the face of reduced demand, they have to cut the, you know, cut the price. Every um, cinder block manufacturer that already has plant that's already been um, you know, capitalized is cranking them out at a certain rate. And so um, initially you get uh, you know, prices drop. And so um, a lot of people would say, yeah, victory, that's it, we got it, but not so fast. Because what happens is at the higher interest rate, the return on capital must, necessarily must, rise to be above the cost of capital. Otherwise, obviously, number one, nobody will borrow capital in order to go into a business that produces less than the cost of capital. And then number two, even existing capital that's out there is rendered submarginal and is ultimately uh, forced to be liquidated. And so what's going to happen is those cinder block manufacturers and those cinder block distributors, some of them are going to be forced to go out of business. And that process will continue until the return on capital in the cinder block business is greater than the cost of capital. The higher the Fed wants to raise the interest rate, the higher the return on capital has to be. That is a force for rising interest rates, but not initially. There's a lag. First, they, uh, they cause a soft market and prices drop. And then later, there's, there's a lag and prices rise. And people will say, oh, well, that's because there was so much money created over such a long period of time. It's going to take higher for longer, which is what the Fed is saying right now. And so these things are extremely dangerous. They're playing with fire uh, without, without really understanding it. And if there's a, um, a takeaway from the report, it's that the, the facile view, um, and there's so many of them, well, if consumer prices are rising, then the price of gold should be rising. And if the price of gold isn't rising when it should be rising, then that, that proves it must be manipulated. These, these views are very tempting and they're very convenient, but they, uh, they ignore or belie the, uh, the complexities, the non-linearities, the positive feedback loops, the things that are occurring in the real economy. Um, and uh, you know, the, the report this year, you know, we spent a lot of words and a lot of pages trying to shed some light on some of those things. But that's, that's what I'd like to call attention to as my, uh, you know, as, as people think about this report and formulate their questions. So with that, I'll, I'll stop and uh, take questions, fire away. We talk a lot about leads and lags. Um, what are some of the things that you think right now are lagging indicators that maybe look okay on the surface at the moment, but in the next two, three, four, five months are going to implode? What are those things that investors should be looking for, especially if you're a gold or silver investor? You know, I was going to say, first of all, leads and lags is one of those things, the other being supply and demand, that are just the economics equivalent of a punt. It's like, well, yeah, sure, okay, leads and lags, but what leads, what lags, and why uh, is, uh, is the question. So lead, I guess, is, you know, if the Fed starts making noise that they're going to raise interest rates, in theory, the stock market should crash in anticipation of that. Certainly not what happened, uh, you know, last year. But I think the... Um, 
the textbook example of lag is employment. A lot of people say employment is either a, a, a contemporaneous or a lagging indicator. I'm not sure I've really read out there a lot of great explanations for it, but here's mine. And, and mine comes as a entrepreneur and, and business manager uh, and not just as an economist. And that is, you know, if you take a look at the, at the story of the last, so we had the crisis in 2008, we had this incredible, I mean, literally it was incredible, um, you know, response of stimulus plus also bailouts and fiscal programs, you know, in the end of in the fourth quarter of 2008 and certainly into 2009. And then through about 2011, the, the, the story was inflation, reflation, et cetera. And after 2011, maybe arguably 2012, um, you know, that became the new normal and, um, you know, commodity prices receded, et cetera. And, you know, since 2012, so I guess we'll call it the last 11 years, there's been, you know, a number of what in retrospect would have to be called head fakes, where everybody thought that's it, you know, the Fed is gonna uh, let, you know, let off a little bit, uh, interest rates are gonna rise. And, um, you know, all the, the endless calls of recession, I love those, um, those clickbait ads that say, uh, you know, this indicator has always, you know, successfully predicted recession and 10 of the last 10 post-war recessions or whatever, it's now flashing red alert, you know, how many of those did we see from, you know, 2011, 2012 through, um, you know, let's just call it pre-COVID because everything sort of changed post-COVID. And so a lot of companies, especially the ones that were still smarting and still had a strong institutional memory of 2008 and what happened, right? In 2008, whichever company laid off first, laid off best. The ones that thought that they could hold the line ended up having to do either bigger layoffs or multiple layoffs or whatever. So to try to get ahead of it, they would do layoffs. And the problem is time and time again between 2012 and, um, and COVID or you know, pre-COVID, any company that did layoffs quickly was, was forced to regret it and try to take the layoffs back and go back to the people that they had just laid off and then beg them to return to their jobs and in many cases offer very large uh, pay raises in order to do so. So now you finally get to, uh, I think that what the Fed you know, began uh, you know, a year ago in 2022 is quite different than anything that really happened um, between 2012 and uh, 2020. Um, but a lot of businesses didn't necessarily, or still don't necessarily see it. I think, okay, well, you know, it, rates rise and is there gonna be a recession, whatever, but smarting from all the times when they made the mistake of laying off, they try to hold the line as long as they can. Eventually that um, vastly higher cost of capital will force their hand. Um, I think we're starting to see that now, uh, but I think we're still in the very early days of it. Um, and uh, that's a perfect example of something that, that lags and why it lags. It's because business managers are stateful. They remember all the mistakes of trying to lay off you know, the previous decade and didn't want to repeat that mistake. This time it's not a mistake, but they you know, slow to realize it. Right, it, it does feel like in some ways this time is different in at least a couple of aspects. So maybe that, that layoff and that lead and lag are actually something for businesses to take heed of this time. 
We've got uh, several questions around gold and crypto. So I know you've written a lot of critiques around crypto, Bitcoin specifically, uh, kind of as the new shiny investment object that is supposed to take out gold. But I'm curious, what are your thoughts about the possibility of combining crypto, blockchain, this kind of new technology, and the monetary aspects of gold? Obviously, I'm, um, for, those, for those that don't know, I'm a technology guy by background majored in computer science, dropped out of computer science school because I wanted to do what so many of my heroes had done, which is build a software company, which I did back in my day. I probably wrote a million line, over a million lines of code, I would say. So I'm definitely a techie and I think I, I tend to get it. And I'm um, sure it, it absolutely makes sense to think about, um, you know, if you, if you think about issuing a, a gold redeemable currency today, would it necessarily be paper notes that people folded and put in, you know, in a wallet, or would it be some sort of electronic thing that was on your iPhone or your Android, and um, you know, leverage the internet? Surely the latter, and you know, would that be a blockchain-based thing? Well, that, that certainly seems logical, uh, absolutely. But the, but the key feature being that it is still a gold redeemable uh, currency, and now we're just using blockchain as a better way of administering. The currency versus printing notes and printing serial numbers on each piece of paper and, and, and so on. Gotcha. Okay, next question. So we use LIBOR a lot in our lease rate calculations and other data that we post on the site. LIBOR is now actually being transitioned into SOFR. Do you have any ideas or thoughts on that transition and how that might affect either the data on our lease rates or just in general markets? You know, yes. Um, I've thought about, can we go back and revisit that code and, and update it? I guess at some point we will. Um, given the growth of the business and all the other initiatives we've had going on and the, um, the pressure to release, um, you know, for instance, a client portal, uh, you know, just hasn't been the highest priority. I think, you know, SOFR, as it's called, is a slightly different rate than LIBOR. So obviously you'd see slightly different numbers for fundamentals, slightly different numbers for calculated lease rate and so on. Um, but I think what's, and we've emphasized this many times over the years, the main important thing is the trend. Um, you know, basis rising, basis falling, lease rate rising, lease rate falling. And, um, you know, it might, it might move things just a little bit, but I think the trend line would still be as clear. So it, ha it hasn't been the most urgent project to go dive in and do that. Gotcha. So, Keith, during the pandemic, the Fed printed nearly double the amount of money that it printed in response to the great financial crisis. And the Fed did all of this in a third of the time. So why has this not led to either A, greater inflation pressures, or B, higher gold prices? So everything about an irredeemable currency system is, is about exponential growth. It has to grow and it has to, everything has to grow exponentially. You can't pay, you can't extinguish the debt because you're paying, you're paying the debt using a debt instrument. So you just shift the debt around. The debt has to grow by at least the amount of accrued interest. And actually a lot more than that, if you want the marginal debtor to be able to service those debts. So, um, you know, every, you know, if you look at the uh, treasury debt, it's, it's on a trend of about every eight years, it doubles. And uh, all the other, you know, credit-related things are also on their doublings. 
of you know whatever time frame. So yeah, today um, or in 2020, I mean today would be even worse. The um, uh, you know the amount that you have to do to try to stabilize the system is um, you know exponentially greater than it was you know those few short years ago. And um, when the Fed finally is forced to reverse its uh, its hikes in in the current uh, purge and go back to binge mode. You know, if, if you think what they created in 2020 was a lot, wait till you see what they're gonna do. Um, but you know, quite a lot of my writing is dedicated to uh, debunking this quantity theory of money, debunking the idea that if you double M0, M1, M2, whatever your favorite measure is, the prices double or that the gold price doubles. Um, the Fed isn't technically printing, it's borrowing. Uh, you are the lender. Everybody who holds what they think is a money balance is actually the, the, the creditor. And they use that credit to further extend credit on to the treasury and the banking system and corporate borrowers and everybody else that is in their you know, ever-expanding remit. And so um, if you look at the quantity of money, you're missing the quantity of debt, um, number one. And if you look at supply of money, you're missing the demand for money. And quantity, quantity itself can't tell you, um, you know, which which side is leading, and it's it's you know we're in a world right now where there's ironically quite a scarcity of dollars, especially offshore, and um, you know demand for money is pushed or demand for dollars I should say is pushed uh, the price of the dollar up quite a lot and and it has quite quite a lot farther to go. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting point. The fact that just looking at one metric, maybe let's say supply of dollars, really doesn't tell you that much. You might even have to look at something like the demand for dollars or the growth in dollars or the growth in credit, um, that this kind of static snapshot really just doesn't do the information justice. Yeah, and you know, keeping in mind, you know, suppose you have a little business, I don't know, let's say it's a print shop and you owe no money whatsoever. How much dollar balance do you need to keep well, you know, a month's worth of payroll and rent, maybe that should be more than fine. Suppose you're in debt up to your eyeballs, how much dollar, ca you know, cash balance do you need to hold? A heck of a lot more than that, especially if you remember 2008, especially if you're watching things now. So, the, the, you know, this is one of those things, supply and demand, it's, you know, sort of tossed out there as a, as a punt, as a cop out. Okay, but what's happening to demand and why? What's driving it? Um, you know, another one is subjective time preference. Well, everything's subjective. Okay, great. But what's driving those subjective time preferences right now? It's the it's the not only the rise of the quantity of debt, but the rise and the uh, difficulty, the burden of paying it, uh, and that's the the backdrop of our economic era. So I've got a follow up to that question, which is, what would it take for gold and silver to rise substantially in dollar terms? Do you see an escalation of the war or a de-escalation of the war in Ukraine playing a role, or are there other factors that are more important? I mean, if the war in Ukraine escalates to an actual, uh, you know, direct confrontation between the U.S. and Russia, and let's say nuclear weapons were involved in that, God forbid, um, then you know, there's no telling what would happen and you could see a $5,000 price of gold in a scenario like that. Um, assuming that doesn't happen and, um, you, you know, trying to analyze war in Ukraine isn't really my swim lane. 
um, assuming that doesn't really happen, I think it's important for people to realize that gold is just the mirror image of the dollar. And when we say gold going up, we're saying the dollar going down. So what holds the dollar up is not some incredible animal spirits, as Keynes would say. It's not some massive conspiracy to hold back from you the one thing they don't want you to know. And when everybody knows it, then the illusion that the dollar is real will go poof. And so with it, the dollar and the gold price will go to whatever unimaginable number. That isn't it at all. Um, most people think of the value of the dollar as one over consumer prices. And you know, it's the purchasing power of the dollars as its value. Well, every producer of every consumer good is in debt up to their eyeballs. And that motivates them to work harder and harder and harder to produce more and more and more to stave off the bank coming and foreclosing and taking their business and ruining them. Um, so it's the struggles of the debtors that hold it up. And um, you know, as you wipe out the debtors, of course, you're not wiping out the dollars, you're just wiping out those that are working hard to back those dollars with real goods. Uh, as you wipe them out, um, yeah, you could see a much higher gold price. I certainly hope that doesn't happen because that's a general impoverishment. You know, that's a scenario that starts to look more and more like the Venezuela. Sure, if you have gold and you bought it at $1,000 and it goes to 20,000, you might feel you're richer. And my argument isn't so much that, well, sure, but consumer prices will go up 20X as well. My argument is that, you know, in a place like that, if, if, you, if you can afford that Ferrari, let's say, you, you show up in that Ferrari and they'll kill you for it. There will be a great deal of anger and violence erupting as a result of that anger. You know, the riots that we saw in the wake of George Floyd ain't nothing compared to what's gonna happen in that kind of general impoverishment. Um, I think we're headed there, but I, as I always say, you know, my friend Aragorn has, has a line that I like to use, today's not that day. Right, okay, Keith, next question for you. So given that irredeemable fiat currencies like the dollar, euro, yen, ruble, cannot be made retroactively redeemable, what strategies can be used to transition to a true gold standard? Let's start there. So, you know, if you start with the end in mind, what's a true gold standard? Well, it's that people willingly deposit their gold in exchange for a piece of paper, which almost seems incredible, right? I mean, the entire uh, zeitgeist of the gold, gold space is trust nobody, hold your gold in one hand and your uh, gun in your other hand, and uh, everything should be cash on the barrelhead, which of course is a devolution of society down to a dark ages village where nobody trusts anybody and you have some subsistence farmers uh, surrounding a crossroads village where you have a blacksmith and uh, if you're lucky a cobbler and a cooper otherwise you have to send 10 miles down the road for those things um and uh you know what is it that number one induces people to deposit their gold well it's trust but also um the inducement is interest why should anybody deposit their gold and take any kind of risk if they're not getting paid for it? If they're getting paid for it, and then now, well, it's a whole different equation. Now it's okay, what's the risk? What's the return? And people can actually make a rational calculation based on that. Um, so there has to be an inducement in the form of interest. The only way to pay interest on something, um, I think I discussed it in the uh, Outlook report. Um, for many years, I said, Bitcoin cannot be borrowed by productive enterprise. Therefore, there can never be interest on Bitcoin 
and and therefore you know Bitcoin is just a sterile dry asset. And then so-called yield farming came out a few years back, and then everyone said, "See Keith, you're wrong," and they tried to rub my nose in it. And I'm like, "Well, we'll see." But this isn't making any sense because there's no productive enterprise that can borrow Bitcoin. And um, it turns out that um, that's true. And uh, so-called yield farming was a you know circular. Uh, I'll just say scheme of some sort. Will that the regulators and the prosecutors and the plaintiffs' attorneys sort it all out over the next few years in court? Um, but th there wasn't any actual real yield, and I suspect that crypto space is going to return to its native habitat, which is there's no yield. But gold always was used to finance production. Everybody from the farmer to the miller to the baker. Um, you know, to to the uh, to the innkeeper, uh, all the way down the up and down the supply chain, everybody borrowed gold. That's what it was to borrow money. Was to borrow gold to finance that. And so, when gold comes back into use as the vehicle for finance, that is synonymous with the process of uh, returning to the gold standard. Um, and that and that process has started. Obviously, that's what we're doing. I'm not really here to tout. Uh, monetary metals in our products, but that's that's the whole why, you know. In a nutshell, you've got to you've got to return the use of gold to finance things, and that will bring gold out of all the nooks and crannies of the economy, um, and into actual you know circulation. Keith, actually, I have a question relating to this exact point. What are the constraints to lending gold to non-gold industry businesses? And what can monetary metals do in the future to work on that to get back to this kind of gold standard? So the constraint is to borrow gold, you need to have a gold income. And if you have a dollar income, and borrow, then if you borrow gold, this is the same criticism I've leveled against uh, you know, alleged attempts to borrow Bitcoin. Uh, it's effectively a short position on gold. And nobody in their right mind would want to take a short position on gold, maybe with the exception of a nimble and aggressive, you know, like hedge fund trader who's, who's watching a chart and taking a short position with a tight stop for a very limited, you know, amount of time. But, you know, you want to do a five-year loan and that effectively becomes a five-year short position on gold. I mean, you can get killed, you know, doing that. So you got to have a gold income or you have to find a way of hedging it. So um, going back to, uh, they invited me to become a member, even though I'm not a legislator in Arizona or a legislator anywhere, they made, made me a member of the Arizona House Ad Hoc Committee on Gold Bonds. Um, and I did a lot of talking in front of that group, which ultimately ratified my proposal um, that the state of Arizona should issue a gold bond, which hasn't happened, but um, without getting into that. One of the things that came up was, that Arizona doesn't have a lot of gold mining today. Historically, it did, but it doesn't today. However, it has a lot of copper mining. And um, so I did talk a little bit on the record. I assume the video is still out there on the AZ Ledge uh, website somewhere um, about could you finance um, a copper producer in gold? And uh, the short answer is yes. And so that would be the next incremental step after financing the gold industry as financing a, another commodity producer. And the reason is pretty simple. If you look at the price of copper and, and quoted in gold, uh, so we have a friend of the company who has a site called pricedingold.com. 
and you look at the price of copper and gold, you can see it there, and you see the price of copper in dollars, it turns out the price of copper and gold is less volatile. Therefore, it would make more sense to borrow it, borrow gold to finance copper production versus dollars. Um, so, you know, the world isn't ready for that, um, but, you know, we're moving, I'm moving that direction. Okay, Keith, one more question kind of in the same vein. So question comes from Canada, where the current leader of the opposition has promised, quote, we will have sound money when I am prime minister. Keith, if you were the prime minister of Canada, how would you go about achieving sound money for Canada? So the first, the first distinction I have to make, and I wrote, a, um, I wrote an essay that was published by the Sound Money Project. Um, I'm a little bit surprised they published it because I was kind of uh, going against what they're saying. Most people think of sound money as non-inflationary, right? Prices are neither going up nor down. So I posit the question, I said, suppose you're the, um, the chairman of the central bank and the president says, I want you to have money that's you know, not going up in value, not going down in value, which means consumer price is not going down and not going up. Um, your challenge is that, of course, every industry is constantly finding ways to do more with less. Every industry is always becoming more efficient. Um, so in an article I wrote for Forbes, I looked at some great data published by the Wisconsin Dairy Association and found between 1967 and 2012, when I wrote the article, um, the, the real resources to produce a gallon of milk decreased by about 90%. So that's land, labor, each cow produced more, each cow took less land, each cow took a lot less labor. So it was about 90%. So suppose the average across all industries was about 2% efficiency gains per year. Um, uh, and so therefore you had to somehow devalue the currency at a matching and corresponding rate of 2% per year. So the net result was prices in terms of your currency were going neither up nor down. Supposing that was possible, which it isn't, would that be sound money? And I used the, uh, the famous Norman Rockwell painting. Um, so Norman Rockwell used to paint uh, every week for the Saturday Evening Post. Uh, and they used it, and that was uh, printed in color. Um, and there's one painting called The Double Ride, which shows um, a woman is buying, I think it's a chicken or a turkey or something at a butcher shop. And the, it's one of those, uh, the, the scales hanging from, from the chains from the ceiling. And then there's a little basket there and then the chicken is in some sort of loosely folded uh, butcher paper. Now the butcher can't see because her finger is hidden behind the uh, behind the meat, but she's got her uh, finger pushing up underneath the scale to lighten it to, to cheat. Now she can't see, but the butcher, because his finger is blocked by some of the paper, he's pushing down on the scale to cheat and make it heavier. So I I pose the question: Suppose that her cheating up force and his cheating down force happen to be the same number of grams or ounces, would that be a sound measure of the weight of the chicken? And you know, suppose a central bank governor were to, to do as I propose, would that be sound money? Obviously not. So the only thing you can do is you can, I mean, if you're the prime minister um, and you could, you, could, you could task, not the, not the governor of the central bank, but the, um, the treasury secretary or the chancellor of the exchequer and the rest of the endless sphere, you could say to that person, your job is to figure out how to shut this thing down and give us a, a real transition to gold. It's not fixing the gold price. It's not saying, okay, well, 
now the, the dollar is going to be backed by, you know, $2,000 for one ounce of gold or whatever magic number you might come up with. That's how do you actually get gold to circulate? How do you make that transition, which would involve issuing gold bonds? Um, I look forward to, if they want to do that or explore that, um, I'd love to throw my hat in the ring and say, look, I can, I can help give you some advice on how to achieve that. Um, but it ain't easy, and uh, it's going to test your, uh, you know, your political, uh, your political will to actually try to do that. Okay, next question for you, Keith. Do you have any updates concerning gold futures backwardation in any markets worldwide? I'm just going to go pull up right now and see what the year contract in gold looks like. Um, just make sure I'm not misspeaking myself here. Yeah, the gold basis for um, the April contract is positive 2%. Let's take a look at the silver basis for um, May is 1.5%. Um, um, so no backward issue at the moment. Premiums on physical gold and silver versus paper contracts. And I want to ask a kind of follow-up question as well, which is there's this hype around shortages in gold and silver supply. So it seems to me that the so-called shortages are more about the difference between retail and bullion markets, meaning retails or investor spaces where sales revolve around one ounce coins versus global markets, which revolve around kilogram gold bars or larger. Is that right? And, and what do you think about these kind of premiums on these type of points? Yeah, the price of physical metal and the price of, of paper, i.e. futures contracts, track so closely that if you were to plot just raw price graph of both of those lines on the same graph, it would read as one line. You would not be able to see any discernible difference between the two. It takes a very sensitive instrument, which is the gold basis, um, to, uh, you know, just to see, you know, to, to see that difference. And um, so I'm just going to go pull up one other graph, which I suppose we can put in the, um, in the playback as well, which is um, a gold carry. I want to I um, put this in dollar terms. So for the April contract, the difference between um, spot and futures is about $5. Um, which is just really a function of the interest rate because uh, anybody can arbitrage that gap. You know, you can um, borrow dollars, buy spots, sell it forward, and that will tend to pull that, that spread down to about the interest rate, give or take. Um, so, you know, metal and, and, and paper essentially have the same price or very, very, very close. $5 is, you know, what is it, approaching a quarter of, you know, quarter of 1%, 25 basis points difference. Um, that's if you want to buy, you know, 400 ounce bars in London. Um, the farther from London you get and the farther from 400 ounce bars you get, you find that there is a loco or a product or and or a product premium. Um, and so I, I kind of liken this to when people say, hey, you know, Starbucks downtown increased the price of, of uh, a double, triple mocha latte um, therefore, the price of coffee is going up. If you went to Jakarta and looked at a 50,000 pound lot of coffee, you might be surprised that it wasn't, the price wasn't moving in the same direction as the 
as the price of that downtown latte. And there's a lot of different factors that affect the latte that don't affect the uh, you know the commercial lot of coffee. And the same thing is true with um, you know one ounce coins, especially eagles. Um, you know, supply is extremely inelastic. Uh, if demand you know spikes as it had, and now these things, you know, prices have come down or premiums have come down. But if, if uh, demand spikes as it did post COVID and again um, in 2022, you can see giant, you know, premiums. I mean, the premium in silver was, was over 50%, I'm sure of that. How much above and depends on the dealer, I don't know. I mean, I didn't, I didn't follow that day by day, but I mean, the, the, the premiums became truly massive and people were willing to pay that much to have an ounce of silver in the form of stamped into an American Eagle. If you're willing to take maples, it was cheaper. If you're willing to take um, Austrian Philharmonikers, you know, it was cheaper. If you're willing to take one, one ounce bars, it was cheaper still. And of course, if you bought it in 100 ounce bars, um, you know, a lot cheaper, or even that, you know, 1,000 ounce bars, the premiums didn't really rise very much. Okay, thanks, Keith. So another question relating to gold and silver. Do you feel that silver coinage is just as important to own as gold? Um, I mean, it's, so when you talk about, you know, something good, then it's always the question of to whom and for what. If, if people are thinking about laying in a certain amount of metal money as insurance against what kind of collapse we might have, then I, I, yeah, absolutely. You're going to want to have some silver um, because gold is far too unwieldy for the kind of transactions you're likely to want to do day to day. Um, so yeah, I mean, should everybody have, you know, a couple hundred ounces of silver on hand? Sure, absolutely. I, I don't see any downside to doing that. You know, beyond that, if you're just now talking about accumulating a silver position, I think there are people that um, logically turn to as kind of a silver speculation that the gold-silver ratio will move down, i.e. the price of silver measured in gold terms will move up, and that silver is a better play than gold, especially with the ratio being quite elevated by historical terms as it is right now, absolutely. Um, and, um, uh, you know, so sure, if, if you're thinking of accumulating more metal and you see silver as a relative bargain, uh, you know, that makes sense. But there's always that question of silver being demonetized. One of the arguments that I find kind of ironic from a lot of the folks in the silver community is that the silver stocks are being consumed. If that were true, then that would mean silver is being demonetized and silver is, is destined to become just another expensive industrial ingredient um, and not money. In which case, uh, why would you want silver in the form of coin? You just want to get silver in the cheapest form possible, which would be the largest possible bars, and then wait for the stocks to be consumed down and you know the industrial users to, to bid up the price of it. Um, but of course, the, the opposite is likely to be the case. If that's happening, it's being demonetized because it's losing its monetary demand, not because it's becoming scarcer, quantity theory of money, rising price, but rather uh, it's losing its monetary demand and it's only being consumed because it's, its cheapness is an incentive to producers of all sorts of things. Hey, use more silver, it's cheap. All these hoards that were accumulated over millennia are now being dumped on the market if you can find a use for silver in your product, it's cheap enough, hey, have at it, um, which isn't necessarily a bullish case at all. 
Right. Keith, speaking of that kind of crisis and, and, and reason for owning precious metals, do you foresee banking reaching any crisis points this year? Uh, will new rules for bail-ins come into play in any American institutions? In the U.S., no. Um, you know, I, I think aside from the, as we discussed earlier, the dollar shortage is much more acute in the rest of the world. Um, also, by all measures, the U.S. banking system is less unsound than the banking systems elsewhere. I do not see monetary crisis in the U.S. Um, in uh, 2023. Okay, next question, kind of similar. The dollar is the global reserve currency, and you mentioned many reasons as to why it enjoys that status. In what time frame do you expect the dollar to lose this status, if ever, and why? I don't think there's any other paper currency, irredeemable currency, that comes remotely close to the dollar. Um, now, obviously the dollar is on both sides of every major balance sheet in the world. It is one side of a great many of the transactions in the world. We had a guest, Jeff Snyder, on one of our recent podcast episodes in which he said, I don't remember if it was 96 or 98%, that all of the derivatives in the world approaching one quadrillion dollars worth of derivatives, 96 or 98% of those derivative contracts have the dollar on at least one side. Um, there's nothing that's even remotely close. Number two is ridiculously far behind. Um, you know, it, Reed Hoffman wrote a book called Blitzscaling, and he's talking about the number one company in a given space versus the number two company and what the difference is. And he talks about uh, a line from Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, when um, the sales manager, which I think was Alec Baldwin, of all people, uh, is saying to the sales team, um, number one, uh, you know, best salesman in this department is going to get a Cadillac. Number two is going to get a set of steak knives. And number three, you're fired. Any questions? And um, so you see this enormous difference between number one and number two. And uh, Reed Hoffman is talking about at the time that he wrote this, Facebook was the number one social media platform worth $300 billion with a B. Number two was MySpace, which was sold for $300 million with an M one one thousandth the value. And then he says, does anybody know what number three was? It was uh, Friendster, which went out of business. Um, so, um, you know, there's no other currency that can handle the flows. There's no other currency that anybody had have any desire to, uh, to own like that. Um, and if anything, the world bit by bit is moving towards dollarization, uh, you know, anyways. It's really only a question of when the whole regime fails and the dollar goes down with it. And then, um, you know, one way or the other, we're moving back to gold. And the only question is whether we do so in a graceful way or whether we do so in a catastrophic way. All right, Keith, next question for you. We've heard a lot of rumors recently about this latest Ghana scheme about oil for gold. Um, what steps? Should a country take, let's say, Nigeria, Ghana, any country in Africa who has been trying this kind of oil for gold scheme, how could they actually switch to a true gold standard? How exactly could that play out? So, you know, the standard playbook is to strong arm your producers. And then you wonder why production, you know, drops and why your 
always so desperately porous because you're desperately taking desperate measures. You, you know, so what, what they did is they said to the gold mining companies, okay, you have to sell, a, you can't take all the gold out of the country anymore. You have to sell a certain amount of it to the Ghana government and you have to be, have to accept the Ghana, I don't know if it's Kedi or SETI, how you pronounce it, C-I-D-I is their currency. You have to take SETI in exchange for your gold. And the way these, these schemes always work is that there's an official exchange rate. You know, the peso is always declared to be one-to-one -one with the dollar. And then there's the actual real free market, black market rate, which is, you know, 10 to one or 50 to one or whatever. So anybody who's forced to deal with the official exchange rate is just basically getting looted. So it's a looting scheme for the gold mining companies to force them to take SETI. And then of course they turn around and trade the SETI for dollars and you know, the, they get screwed again. And um, so now, you know, the government has this gold and the government's trading the gold, perhaps to certain suppliers of oil who are locked out of the SWIFT international payment system, but they can, you know, ship them some, some physical gold. That's not really a gold standard. That's really just looting. Um, you know, if, if you are a emerging economy and you really want to go to the gold standard, then, and assuming you have debt, which they usually do, you should issue gold and you have gold miners. Cut a deal with the gold miners to get the tax, taxes paid directly in gold rather than in currency. And, and by cut a deal, I mean, give them some slack on environmental regulations and other, there's so many ways that you're cutting into their profit margins, cut them a little bit of slack, make it, give them an incentive to wanna to pay their, their taxes directly in gold, which I'm sure they'd be happy to do. They produce the gold anyway, and then issue gold bonds. But when you issue the bond, don't try to sell the bond for dollars so that you can finance your kleptocracy and your welfare state. The point is to try to get out of that. Don't sell the bond for gold. You're not trying to raise gold. You have a gold income from your miners. Sell the bond for outstanding paper bonds. Say, look, we want you to you know, go into the market, buy up our paper debt and bring it back to us and exchange the paper bonds for the new gold bonds. And what will develop over time is a paper bond to gold bond exchange rate that will be rising in favor of gold. In other words, you can get out of debt at a discount and bring the gold back into, into circulation that way. Um, is anybody willing to do that? We'll find out. Okay, thanks Keith. So speaking of these desperate measures, what does China reopening and its central bank rapidly expanding credit imply for your outlook? So everyone was waiting for the massive increase in commodity prices that was gonna come as a result of this reopening, which so far has not occurred. Um, you know, it'd be interesting to see that. I think what's one of the things that's happened is that Russia is finding it much harder to sell to the West. So they have to divert their stuff that they sell to China. And then that means China is buying less on the world market. Overall, I think it's better for everybody if every economy is reopened um, and every economy is producing maximally because that's, that's the basis of trade. You know, Adam Smith wrote about this and comparative advantage. China produces certain things that West doesn't produce. They have the labor force to assemble, you know, electronics, let's say phones, by the billions of units that labor force doesn't exist anywhere else. Um, you know, would commodity prices go up? Well, if consumption is going up and we're consuming more commodities, maybe. On the other hand, more commodities could be produced. 
as well. So that's a more complicated thing. Overall, that would be a good thing if they truly uh, were reopening. That would be a good thing. Keith, I, I have a clarifying question from the chat here about your logic that gold could finance copper mining and other non-gold commodities. Could uranium fit that same logic? I mean, could gold finance uranium? Yeah, it could. Okay, there's your answer. Okay, next question. This is about macro. So we've had high yield corporate bond issuances pick up recently while yields have been easing. And debt restructuring firms are reporting increased demand and supply for restructurings. Why do you think capital is being allocated to these instruments in this environment? You know, it's a big puzzle. And every once in a while, I, I kind of pause and think about why hasn't the spread between junk and treasuries blown out with all this you know, rising interest rates? And um, I don't have the answer to that. And if anybody does, I'd love to hear it. Uh, all I can say is that there's some sleight of hand going on somewhere. Is the Fed buying junk bonds? I don't know. I haven't read that they are. I'm not sure that if they did and they wanted to do so in a clandestine way that we would necessarily be reading about it. Um, but now you say restructuring, um, is that like bankruptcy restructuring or is that just refinancing? You know, usually restructuring kind of implies that there's actually distress and one could certainly see that. So, you know, I think in the outlook report, I talk about the, the interest rate on, on short T-bills went up 4%, the interest rate on uh, the spread between junk and, and treasuries went up uh, a point and a quarter or so. Treasuries, uh, sorry, junk went up about five and a quarter percent. Surely that's causing a lot of distress as companies, and here's another lag, um, you know, they don't feel the pinch of the rising interest rates immediately. They feel it when they have to roll over their debt and refinance. And then at that point, can you really refinance at five and a quarter points higher than where you were, you know, a year ago? Uh, in many cases, the answer is no. So then you get into restructuring, cram downs, you know, who knows what, and then are there bailouts? You know, if you're a bank and you accept a cram down and you accept um, debt for equity or you roll for longer maturities, uh, is the Fed giving you an inducement? Is the Fed agreeing to buy some of this off your balance sheet? Um, are the, uh, uh, you know, the regulators allowing, you know, offering to bend the rules so you don't have to recognize the losses? Um, you know, who knows what's going on? behind the scenes of economic forces were allowed to function, there would be a great deal of stress and a crisis already as a result of hiking interest rates. That's for sure. All right, Keith, next question. You write a lot about the falling interest rate trend. We've had a four decades long falling interest rate trend. Question here, ultimately, do you think this is caused by the government or by market conditions? And if your answer is by government, why couldn't the Fed simply reverse it? Well, it's a, uh, it's a push me, pull you. Um, it's, it's a positive feedback resonant system that takes, takes two to tango. So, so the government imposes upon us an irredeemable currency and forces us to use that irredeemable currency as if it were money. Um, which people do, but of course it can't extinguish debt and also it can't set an interest rate rationally. 
in the gold standard, the interest rate is the spread between the gold coin and the gold bond. Um, and the dollar system, what's the difference between the dollar bill and the 30-year bond? The only difference is really uh, duration. So the interest rate becomes meaningless, the interest rate goes off the rails. It is definitely an iterative process involving market participants. The process and the forces involved in that process are much greater than the Fed. And so certainly the Fed is a um, complicit party in collusion with this whole thing and making it happen, but it doesn't mean the Fed has the power to just say, we will have rising interest rates today. We'll have falling interest rates today. We'll have rising, it doesn't, they don't have that power. They can't, uh, they can't reverse once they've set this thing in motion. Um, they can't necessarily, uh, you know, alter it to their, to their whim. Okay, Keith, next question for you. So from the Outlook report, you said when discussing your silver price prediction, we would not expect the crazy silver price action of 2011 to recur, as that was due to Boolean bank duration mismatch in their silver book, more than merely silver sentiment. Can you expound on what you meant by Boolean bank duration mismatch and, and how that causes silver price to spike in 2010 and 2011? So I've contended since the beginning that the bullion banks, right? So people look at the futures market and they say, it's obviously a zero sum market. There's a futures contract in which one party is long, the other party is short. If the price of the commodity and you know, that, that contract is a contract to deliver, if the price of the commodity goes up, then the person who's on the long side gets cash added to their account. Um, and uh, if the, commodity price goes down, then whoever's long gets cash removed from their account. It's a margin account. And every day they settle and they, they put cash in and take cash out. And then they say, well, whoever is short gets the opposite. If the price is going down, then the short gets cash in their account. If the price is going up, aha, if the price is going up, whoever is short is losing money. And so they just think that whoever is short is the same as whoever's long. It's some fool who's betting on a falling price. And then if the price is not falling or rising, then they say, well, how can they keep that up? Well, it must be manipulation, it's clandestine, it's this, that's the other thing. Um, I've contended that the per party who's short the future is not actually short metal as a directional bet. Nobody in their right mind would wanna take a long-term perpetual short position on any commodity. The risks are so lopsided and the general trend is the money is going down you, you know, it doesn't take a genius to look at the price chart of gold and say, you don't want to be short that, you know, for the long term. Uh, that they're arbitrage, that they are short a future, but they're long metal or they're long at least a metal receivable, right? So sound banking doesn't necessarily mean that the metal is sitting there in the vault, but it means that you have an instrument that matures into metal when it needs to. To, to pay the you know, liabilities when the liabilities are due. And what, uh, what happened in the, in the case of the silver market is that the banks had longer term you know, silver loans and silver leases that didn't necessarily match the maturity of when um, the uh, futures contracts were maturing. And then uh, you know, many, many times the, the people on the long side have said, well, look, it's just a matter of a few percentage points more people demanding delivery on their metal, 
and you can cause this giant squeeze. Well, 2011, that's what happens. So what I, what I believe happened is the banks learned their lesson and were a little more careful about matching the maturities so that um, I, I don't think that's likely to recur. And I don't think, yes, definitely there was bullish sentiment in 2010 that led to that, but the bullish sentiment only was able to light the fuse and create that incredible run from, you know, where was silver before the whole thing started? It was under 15 bucks, right? In spring of, of 2010, if I recall. Um, I'm saying that without looking at the screen, so I'm sure somebody's gonna look it up and say, Keith, you're wrong, it was 16 bucks. But, you know, it was definitely in that uh, teens, you know, level. And, um, you know, that fuse was lit. And then starting in August, I think, or maybe September of 2010 through, um, you know, April of 2011, you know, the price runs up, you know, three times, uh, you know, 300% kind of, kind of level. That wasn't sentiment entirely. That was the banks now scrambling to, uh, to come up with the metal to deliver into their positions because their assets, which do mature into silver, were longer maturity assets. And so you had a, a scramble. I don't think would. I mean, it's always possible the banks have done that again. So a long time ago, the people that were managers at the banks at that time may be replaced by younger people, don't have the institutional memory, but that was kind of a fluke. I wouldn't necessarily expect that to happen again. So Keith, I see what you're saying. The dollar is a credit, but why does that matter when it's working? I can use my dollars. I can buy all this stuff after all. Civilization continues on and it's gone on even after we abandoned the gold standard. So doesn't that kind of prove we don't need it after all? We're much more prosperous now than we are then. And, you know, we had a gold standard then. We don't have one now. Things seem to be working all right. How do you arrive at the conclusion that civilization will collapse if we don't phase out the dollar? So a couple of things. Um, yes, we're, we definitely enjoy our higher standard of living than we did uh, before 1913. That's true. And then that raises the, the concepts of because of or despite um, you know, this irredeemable currency. That's the first set of questions. Um, how much wealthier would we be if we had an honest money system versus the counterfeiting or check kiting scheme that we have now? Well, it's very hard to say, but we'd certainly be wealthier than we are because the system stimulates or overstimulates malinvestment and then liquidation. We have this boom bust cycle, which is enormously destructive of of wealth. Every time an entrepreneur goes into business lured perhaps by the false incentives of the, of the boom or the binge side of the Fed's bulimia monotosa, as I called it in the report, um, and then gets wiped out in the purge, well, that person's life savings could be 20 or 30 years of savings are destroyed. That person is personally impoverished and the world is poorer for him having, having wiped that out versus being able to contribute that capital to something productive. Um, but, you know, here, here's an argument that I've made several times in, in various articles. If the problem was simply that consumer prices are rising, if it were true that the way to understand the dollar is one over consumer prices, so that if consumer prices double then the dollar's worth half, and that was it, that was the full extent of the problem, then you could say, well, look, we've had rising consumer prices for 100 something years. There's no reason why we couldn't have consumer prices for another 100 years, another 1,000 years. There's no finite terminus 
to this process. We just have inflation forever. And yeah, it kind of sucks, but get over it. You know, one day bell bottoms will come back and uh, micro skirts for the women and everything will be good again. Um, but that's not it. The problem is we have an exponential rise in debt. And anybody who studies science or engineering, animal populations, disease vectors, thermonuclear explosions, um, you know, transistors and you know, positive feedback get hotter. Uh, the more current there is, but the hotter they get, the more current they flow. You know, exponential trends fail catastrophically when they can no longer continue any, any further. Um, if they didn't put a, uh, a circuit to limit amplifiers, you know, like guitar amplifiers from going in, into feedback and overdrive, if there's no circuit to limit it, the thing would continue to, to pull more and more current in until the house burned down. That's how exponential trends you know, end. We now have, what is it, 31 trillion in debt? Does anybody seriously think that that debt could be paid off? And what does it mean if it isn't paid off and it's actually formally defaulted? The other side of that debt, that's your money. What you think of as money is their debt. And when that debt is formally defaulted, that will be a total wipeout of your money. Imagine waking up one morning and you don't have a bank account. And none of your neighbors have bank accounts either. Your employer doesn't have a bank account. Your pension fund doesn't have a bank account. Your insurance company doesn't have a bank account. Um, so you don't have a job, you don't have any money. The grocery store doesn't have any money. They can't buy, like, that's, a, that's an epic collapse. Um, so we're, we're, we're doing things that cannot be sustained. And by definition, anything that cannot be sustained will not be sustained. And then in the failure to sustain it, that's the, uh, that's the failure that, that we're talking about here. Keith, I want to say thank you for ending on such a doom and gloom note, but yeah. I want to make everyone happy Wait, because obviously- you're asking me that question is the last question. Yes, yeah, so I'm going to turn this all around and give everyone a reason to smile. Obviously, monetary metals is all about getting that smooth off-ramp back to a gold standard. We've got a lot of questions from the audience about monetary metals, how leasing works, how bond works. Um, please do email us those questions. We'd love to continue chatting with you. Anyone who didn't answer your questions will be having more webinars in the future. So we'd love to chat with you, have Keith answer all your great questions. And we want to thank you one more time. If you can complete that survey, that'd be so helpful to us. And we look forward to seeing you in the future. Thanks so much, Keith. Monetary Metals is a different kind of gold company. Others buy and sell gold. Monetary Metals operates the Gold Yield Marketplace, a platform of products that offer a yield on gold paid in gold to investors and institutions, and are gold financing simplified, reliable financing denominated in gold with a built-in hedge for gold-using and gold-producing businesses. To learn more, visit www.monetary-metals.com. See you next time.